Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. General Motors, a fixture in American automobile manufacturing, announced plans on Tuesday to lay off 15,000 workers and to close five plants. The news today couldn't have come at a worse time. Just weeks now until Christmas and General Motors has now revealed it will lay off workers in Ohio, Michigan and Maryland. Thousands of jobs. The president responded to GM's news harshly. He publicly criticized the CEO of General Motors and repeatedly tweeted his disappointment with the company. In tweets over several days, Trump said that he was looking at cutting all GM subsidies, and he cast GM as an outlier among other American auto companies, tweeting that the USA is booming. Trump said he was considering imposing tariffs on imported cars, and his tweet said the president has great power on this issue. That, ladies and gentlemen, is our cue. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Now, President Trump has made the revival of American manufacturing a key part of his message, which explains why his pushback against GM has been so strong. So how much of his rhetoric and threats against the company can he act on? Can he impose import penalties? Can he revoke subsidies and change regulations? What power does a president have unilaterally? And what requires Congress? Damian Paletta has these answers. He's an economic policy reporter at The Washington Post who writes about the economy under the Trump administration. It would be, you know, a tremendously big blow to uh, manufacturing workers in those states that had been hoping under President Trump to have a big revival, you know, in, in blue-collar work. So the president's been uh, really animated and upset about it, but no doubt this is kind of a big crack in the economy that no one expected about a year ago. Right. So you'll have these workers laid off who will lose their jobs, but then all of the other sort of industries that revolved around these plants will also suffer. Exactly. I mean, a big part of auto manufacturing is the auto parts companies that sell products in, that go into cars. And so there sh- should be a huge ripple effect. I talked to someone in Youngstown, Ohio, where one of the plants is going to be, and he expected the unemployment rate in Youngstown to go up to 10% when this is all said and done in a year or two. So obviously a tremendous impact. And what kinds of jobs do these layoffs encompass? Now, it, it seems like the plants that are getting impacted are ones, you know, specifically that made sedans that um, GM felt weren't catching on with the public. So in other words, it's kind of bad luck almost if you were working at a plant that specialized in these vehicles. It wasn't like you were doing anything wrong. It's just that the American public wasn't buying the cars. So, you know, a lot of manufacturing jobs, you know, hourly work, but it was good paying jobs, union labor. And the good news for these workers, uh, obviously, is that with such a low unemployment right now, they're going to be going out into an economy where there's lots of work. But they might have to move, right? They might have to relocate from Youngstown, Ohio and, and go somewhere industries. else. Yeah, very disruptive. Okay. So why has GM then decided to do this? You say their sedans weren't selling, but why, why closing these plants? Sure. I mean, GM is an iconic American brand 
But it's also, many people don't know this, it's a global company. And it does have operations in China and other, you know, parts of the world that have found more success, you know, either because of trade rules or because of, you know, foreign markets that are, that have been more successful. And so, you know, GM has and Ford, um, and obviously Chrysler, which is you know a totally different company than it was ten years ago. These companies have had to kind of reinvent themselves, you know, especially now with all this automation and the way that batteries and electrification are working in cars. So that's easy for like a new company like Tesla, which is starting from scratch. But for like a big battleship like GM, it's hard to do those things on the fly, and it's hard to do those things without having a huge disruption to your workforce and to your company. So that's what they're in the middle of now. So as Americans, GM is one of these companies that is part of our narrative. Why is GM always a company that the government wants to help out or is deeply involved with their success? I, I think there's some companies during the financial crisis, there were some banks that were too big to fail because of the impact it would have on the broader economy. There's some companies that both because of their iconic status as American firms, but also because of the ripple effect that the, that the layoffs would have, almost like it's a no-brainer for Democrats and Republicans to step in and help. And it's always dangerous when the government extends taxpayer money or whatever to help a company because it teaches other companies that if they get in trouble, they'll get help as well. But a company like GM, there's this freak-out effect among policymakers because if you just let a company that has all these employees that ripples across so many different industries, auto parts, et cetera, and also has these pensions that many retirees depend on, it can be very unsettling at the next election because voters are like, you know, forget this. You guys didn't help us out. We've been, you know, paying our taxes for years. We're going to call for a big change. So I think that's why GM does attract a lot of attention from Washington. General Motors does attract a lot of attention from Washington. Perhaps the most notable time, at least in my memory, was the bailout of General Motors during the 2008 financial crisis. For years, America's automakers have faced serious challenges. Burdensome costs, shrinking share of the market, and declining profits. In recent months, the global financial crisis has made these challenges even more severe. GM, Ford, and Chrysler at the time were the three, you know, big, famous American auto companies. And the financial crisis was happening at a horrible time for them because they had their own problems. Those problems at the time were things like difficult union deals and a decline in the popularity of each brand's cars. And as a result of all the tumult, Chrysler and GM went into bankruptcy. And the threat that if Chrysler and GM went down, so too would Ford, loomed. The government created this thing, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, which was $700 billion, was supposed to help the banking industry. But because of all this public pressure, the Bush administration and the Obama administration, when it took over in 2009, helped steer a big, sizable amount of that money towards GM and Chrysler. And it helped them go through bankruptcy and restructure a bit. General Motors was given an emergency loan of billions of dollars by the federal government. That loan got them through the crisis and eventually out of bankruptcy. But it was definitely like crossing a Rubicon in terms of taxpayers and the federal government because it did send a signal, listen, your company is so important that we will do the unthinkable. And it also almost sends a signal that if this happens again, we'll be there again. Very controversial, kind of led to the birth of the Tea Party, all this federal taxpayer involvement in, in the economy. And GM did kind of right itself and, uh, you know, emerge stronger. But as we can tell, it's still having major challenges. 
Today, in 2018, General Motors is no longer in debt to the United States government. The company has paid back its loans with interest. There's some people who could say they owe everything to the government, but right, there's no like actual (laughs) IOU. That's right. Obama and Bush, it sounds like, took one approach of helping GM by providing this infusion of loans. We've laid out the risks of having done so. Trump seems to be taking a different approach. How has President Trump reacted to the news of these layoffs and plant closures? Really interesting. So the first day he told them, rethink it, reverse it, and put a new plant in Ohio, right? It was, you could tell that he was freaking out because he was like throwing everything against the wall. It wasn't like, I know they're going to do it. It's like, they better do it or else. Okay, the next day he said, they're in big trouble. I'm going to take away all the federal subsidies for GM. Okay, obviously that would be a huge problem, but for the company, um, the subsidy that he mentioned, this electric car credit, that if you buy you know electric car, you get a taxpayer credit from the federal government. It's actually a pretty big incentive to, to buy an electric car. And the problem is GM has like almost burned through all of theirs, and so is Tesla. So it's actually not a slap on the wrist to do that to GM because there's almost no credits left. But I think he was like, looking, so there was a certain number that they could give to yeah, people I think who it was bought like cars. Yeah, two hundred thousand GM cars could get this credit, and I think they're really close to that. Now he could renew the credit for everyone except for GM. I mean, there's ways that he could try to punish them. And then the latest thing was he said that he's going to impose tariffs on all auto imports from every other country in order to drive up the costs of Toyota, BMW, whatever, so that an American-made car looks cheaper and more appealing to consumers. As I sort of mentioned before, Obama and Bush decided to help GM, and Trump is taking a harder line against them. Is there evidence that one approach will be more effective than the other? Excellent question. At the beginning of the Trump administration, so what the what President Trump has tried to do is kind of browbeat companies into changing their behavior or luring them, right, like we saw with Foxconn in Wisconsin, like we saw with Carrier in Indiana, like luring them with often state incentives to stay and, and do stuff in the United States. So he start, he's starting out by browbeating, and we saw this with Harley-Davidson a few months ago. Harley-Davidson, which obviously benefited greatly from the tax cuts, said it's going to be moving some of its operations. It didn't say the country, but like let's say Asia or out of the United States because it was getting caught in the crossfire of President Trump's trade war. Their costs were going up on the metal parts that are needed for their motorcycles. And Harley-Davidson has had problems with sales. They're, they're not like a hugely profitable company. So they've made the decision like we'll just take a whack from President Trump and we have to do this because it's going to save our business. He got really furious and said he's going to essentially tax them into bankruptcy, right? The same kind of threat we're seeing now. And so – Did he do that? He did not. I mean he can't. Like Congress has to pass taxes. And so he threatened them but then it went away. So I guess the question is – the point I was trying to make is at the beginning of the Trump administration, this stuff seemed to work. You know, companies did change their behavior. We saw either with Boeing or Lockheed Martin, like, change the way they're going to do Air Force One, right, after he was going bananas about the cost of Air Force One. It did work just, like, humiliating and exposing them to the public, but now it's not working as well. Harley-Davidson did not change its behavior. GM has given no indication that it's going to change its behavior. There's other companies that could make similar announcements in the near future, and I think but the fact that there's multiple of these things happening at once, it actually gives the companies cover. Like, we're not the only ones who are having problems. You know, we have to do this, even if it leads to a tweet storm from the president. 
Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's refer to the tweet storm that he, he has been issuing over a few days on GM at this point. One of those tweets said that the president has great power on this issue. Right. Do we know what Trump was referring to when he said that? No. My hunch is that he's referring to declaring, essentially imposing tariffs on all $200 billion worth of cars that come into the U.S. each year. And his thinking is that if he makes a Kia or a Hyundai or a Honda or a Toyota or a Beamer or a Mercedes or a Nissan more expensive, like let's say instead of $30,000 car, it's a $35,000 car, then you're going to go buy a Ford because it's $27,000, even if you don't like it as much, right? And maybe that will work. His point was that there have been these tariffs in place on light trucks since the 1960s. There was this, like, weird— The chicken tax. Yeah, the chicken tax. <laughs> and it was a really weird chapter in American history that still exists. There was, like, a big fight between the U.S. and European countries on chickens and the price of chickens and whether the U.S. or the Dutch were, like, dumping cheap chickens in markets. And to re- respond, um, the Johnson administration put this— 27.5% tariff on light truck imports to the United States. And the president's point is, look, we have this like thriving light truck market, the Ford F-150, you know, such a cool truck. It's so popular. It's and a pretty it, cool truck. It is a cool truck and it is popular, <laughs> but it's popular because it's a cool truck, right? I don't think it's like the price. And so, uh, but anyway, what he's trying to do is say, well, that worked, so let's try this with cars and, you know, who knows if that'll work. And it, and it will be very disruptive, right? And we'll make other cars more expensive. Does he have unilateral power when it comes to imposing import penalties? Okay, great question. He thinks he does. Other people think he does not. This is something that comes up constantly and can he do that? Right. There's different interpretations of what he can actually do. Right. And and his strength is that it would take so long to litigate the fact he doesn't have the power that he could, you know, a couple years, that in the meantime, he could do almost kind of whatever he wants and get his point across. So he could, as we've seen with the tariffs on steel and aluminum, it's possible it's illegal for him to be doing this, right? It's never really been tested before, but he is changing the way the market works in the meantime. And so he called, I forget what he called this auto tariff thing. It was like the holy mother or the mother load. Like this is the big, you know, Trump card. And so even if it's not technically legal, it would take so long for it to be sorted out that other countries might say, okay, fine, we'll just like do whatever he wants to get this to go away. Okay, so aside then from import penalties and from publicly shaming companies, what other means does a president have to create jobs in the manufacturing industry or influence the industry? I mean, they could create tax incentives for manufacturers. They could extend even more credits for the creation of certain types of cars that are fuel efficient or have special batteries or something like that. They could try to tailor federal programs to help the creation of specific jobs. And they could obviously do what they did with Foxconn, which was unusual in Wisconsin, but like just pump a ton of money in to almost make it like the company's paying nothing to operate. And those require Congress, though. Well, in Foxconn's case, it was the state of Wisconsin. 
But yeah, often, almost always, Congress has to be involved to approve something like that. Now, they could like go to some energy department program and peel some money off, this or that. It's possible. Maybe some DOT program as well. You know, they're pretty creative at trying to find money. But usually it's hard to do unilaterally. And what about regulations? Can the president unilaterally impose or deregulate specific companies or industries? Yeah, it's harder when it's specific companies. I think when specific companies feel like they're getting regulated or picked on, they have a pretty valid case in court. But he could, and that's the problem, right? If he tried to just punish GM, he'd, he'd probably end up whacking Ford as well. And that's not what he wants to do is harm more U.S. companies. But if he tried to peel back regulations on just Ford, that could cause problems as well. I remember with Harley Davidson, when he wanted to tax them into bankruptcy and have this boycott, he mentioned that other foreign motorcycle companies were going to, he was going to lure them to the United States somehow. And that never ended up happening. He was unclear what he was talking about. But I guess what he could do is he could try some way to help the competitors of GM. And if GM is going to try to, obviously, if GM is going to try to import cars from China to the U.S., then actually he might have a little more power because he could, you know, make that more expensive. So given all of that, should the Trump administration be given credit for improvements made in the manufacturing industry in terms of jobs? And I, I mean, I think definitely they have made a big impact and they have helped revive the manufacturing industry, especially in the parts of the upper Midwest that were key to his, his election, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan. However, the uh, manufacturing industry is a, is a shell of what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it still has not recovered to the levels before the financial crisis. And it might never. And part of that is external factors like automation. Exactly. And so on the one hand, it's imp- these jobs are really important. They're really important for communities. They're really important for families. It's important for a blue-collar family to be able to have like a good living that supports its family, could put the kids through college. But at the same time, it's just not the job it was 20 or 30 years ago. And the country has to sort of accept that, and that's proven harder to do. How has it played out in the mind of voters then? Did we see any evidence of this in the midterms? Excellent question. I I think one of the reasons the president responded so angrily to this is because he felt like his economic message was rejected in the midterms um, by voters. And now that it seems like maybe his economic message wasn't as strong as he had said it was with this GM case, you know, he's almost like he's hitting the panic button. He's going to the G20, he's meeting with these foreign leaders who are starting to question, you know, whether he knows what he's talking about and the economy. And so between this and and Harley-Davidson and some other things, the stock market, like, really flying around, he's kind of being put to the test in terms of how much he really can control the country's growth. And so uh, I think what we're trying to, what we're seeing here is him maybe overcorrecting by lashing out at the company and threatening all these things in order to try to prevent another company from thinking about doing the same thing. Okay. And just to wrap this up as sort of a final reality check, if you will, how much influence does a president really have on the economy? How many factors are controlled by the administration versus just external factors that a president will kind of be subject to no matter what? Yeah. (laughs) So Kellyanne Conway said this week that President Trump is running the economy. I mean, that's just not true. Um, Presidents always like to take credit for when things are good, and they always pass the buck when things are not going well. I mean, I think the president does deserve credit for helping breathe confidence and enthusiasm into the economy, especially last year and early this year. You know, we saw consumer confidence was high. Business confidence was high. Jobs numbers pretty much stayed consistent with what they were at the end of the Obama administration, but economic growth has picked up. Um, The tax cut law did help in the interim in terms of giving companies more money to spend. Now, they haven't spent it like a lot of people wanted them to. 
and it's blowing out the deficit, right? But I think he does deserve credit for, like, getting everyone a little bit more juiced up to spend. Now, that's not sustainable forever. And, you know, eventually we have to pay off these bills, especially the deficit's out of control for for an economy that's growing like this. So the question is, is the chicken coming home to roost now? Is this GM stuff and the stock market stuff and Harley-Davidson the beginning? Because there's always a beginning, like a couple dominoes that fall. Or is this just a couple, you know, little things that are happening but we're going to kind of barrel through. And that's what we don't know. And that's what he doesn't know. And it's going to you know, have huge implications for 2020 one way or the other. All right. So maybe in 2020 it will be the economy, stupid, right? <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, Damien, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks. As always, for more on the Trump administration, you can visit WashingtonPost.com or follow me, Allison Michaels, on Twitter at Allison Mikes. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the charismatic Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 